Uh, sometimes silence can say an awful lot, can't it? Uh, I think one of the most dramatic moments in Mark's Gospel involves silence. It happens in chapter 3. Jesus is in the synagogue. It's a Sabbath. And there's a man in the synagogue with a shriveled hand. And the Pharisees are all sitting around Jesus waiting to see if he will heal this man on the Sabbath. Because if he does, the Pharisees reckon that they'll be able to gang up on him uh, for breaking their Sabbath laws. And Matthew writes, Jesus said to the man with a shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But the Pharisees remained silent. And Jesus looked at them in anger. Sometimes silence can say a lot. Which is what this morning's Bible passage is all about. Mind you, in today's passage, the silence that is on view is not a bad thing. Unlike the silence of the Pharisees back there, which stood to condemn them, uh, in today's passage, Paul lists out some situations where silence is actually to be commended rather than condemned. He lists out some situations where silence is a good thing, where silence is the way of love. Now, if you've been here the past few weeks, you'll realise that this section comes at the end of a big discussion all about the use of gifts within the church. Nowadays, we often call them spiritual gifts. Paul himself never uses that term. He simply uses the plainer term of gifts. That's because he wants to keep separate this idea of gifts determining how spiritual you are. The Corinthians, they think that whatever gift you've got affects how spiritual you are as a person and Paul has been arguing at length that that's not the case. You can speak in tongues, still be an empty gong. You can prophesy or teach, you can still be a nothing. You can have more gifts than you can shake a stick at and still be a spiritual baby because it's not what gifts you have that's important, it's how you're using the gifts. And in particular, whether you're using your gifts in love. That's the sign of spirituality, using your gifts in love. And this week, Paul brings it all together by pointing out that sometimes using your gifts in love, sometimes being spiritual, sometimes following the way of love is best done by staying silent. And in the passage, he gives three examples where that's the case. The first example involves speaking in tongues. Verse 26. What then shall we say, brothers? When you come together, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. All of these must be done for the strengthening of the church. Now that last sentence, it's very much picking up on what we discovered last week, isn't it? That whenever you get together as a church, the way of love is to do what best builds up other people, what best edifies other people. Or as he puts it in today's passage, you do what is best for strengthening the church. Well, if that's the case, he goes on to explain in very practical terms what that's going to involve with speaking in tongues. Verse 27, if anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at most three should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and God. These are very clear and specific conditions. 
if speaking in tongues is to occur within a context of a church family, absolute maximum three, one at a time, must be interpreted. And he is very definite on that must. Uh, He even emphasises it again in verse 28. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church. And so it doesn't even sound as if you've got the situation where someone just comes out with a prayer in tongues and then you look around for someone to interpret. It's more restrictive than that. It sounds as if even before anyone starts speaking in tongues, you've got to run a check to see that it's going to be able to be interpreted. And if there's no interpreter, the speaker stays quiet. Now, why does Paul say that? Why the restriction? Well, again, it's tapping into what we heard last week. It's not because he's down on tongues. He certainly doesn't want to forbid it. Verse 39 makes that clear enough. He doesn't want to forbid them. Praying in tongues is a good gift, remember. It edifies the prayer, but it's got limited use when a church gets together. Because the way of love is that you do what most edifies others, not necessarily yourself. And unless the tongue can be interpreted, no one will know what's being prayed, no one's minds will be engaged, no one will be helped, no one will be built up. And so sometimes the way of love is to stay silent. A second example of silence follows, this time involving prophecy. Verse 29. Two or three prophets should speak and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. For God is not a God of dishonor, disorder, sorry, but of peace. Again, notice that he's now restricting prophecy to two or three speakers. And notice also that what they say is to be assessed by the rest of the church. Because remember, again from last Sunday, we noticed that New Testament prophecy carries less authority than teaching and way less authority than Old Testament prophecy. And so because of that, New Testament prophecy has to be weighed up and evaluated. And so the situation here even sounds as if it might be the situation of conflicting prophecies. Perhaps someone is prophesying that the church should do one thing and another one says, no, no, and they hop up and they prophesy, no, 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 we should do this. Paul says when you've got different prophets doing that, it is most helpful that the one speaking gives way to listen to the new prophecy. It's no good having one person speak over the top of the other. It is most edifying, it's most profitable if they speak one at a time in an orderly fashion. And so sometimes a prophet just needs to stop, sit down and be silent. In fact, he stresses that in verse 32 by saying that the spirits of prophets are subject to the control of the prophets. In other words, it's no excuse for a person to say, oh, you know, I can't can't control myself. I couldn't stop prophesying. The Holy Spirit content compelled me. I I just had to get it out. Paul says that that excuse just will not wash. The, The spirit of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. And so if need be, a prophet needs to exercise that control, stop speaking and sit down. Because, verse 31, so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. Verse 33, for God is not a God of disorder but of peace. And therefore, do you see yet again, here is another example where the way of love sometimes is to simply be silent. A third example follows, this one involving women. 
second half of verse 33. As in all the congregations of the saints, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. Now, what on earth is going on here? Is this a blanket statement saying that women can't ever speak in church? Uh, did we do something wrong a few minutes ago when Louise prayed for us? I don't think so. Because remember, back in chapter 11, Paul talked about women praying and prophesying back there, and he didn't say they couldn't do it at all. He simply explained how they ought to go about doing it when they do do it. So this verse is clearly not a blanket statement saying that women can't ever be allowed to speak. So what's it getting at? need to remember the context. From verse 29, Paul has been talking about sitting in judgment on prophecy. He's talking about weighing up what a prophet says and which prophecy is right and which is wrong and perhaps discerning which way the church should respond to a, pro to a revelation. And in that context, Paul is saying that women ought to be content to be silent. They must be in submission, he says. And by that, Paul means that they must be in submission to male headship in the church. Well, now, as soon as I mention that one, submission to male headship, that, that raises a whole lot of questions, doesn't it? That's very countercultural, uh, especially because people mistakenly hear that and they think that somehow women are therefore being told to be inferior, that, that this is saying that women are incapable or, or less valuable than men. None of that is true. But if this mention of submission troubles you, can I suggest that it would be good to listen to the Bible talk that we did from 1 Corinthians 11 earlier on in the year, back in May. You can listen to it at our church website or on iTunes because in that talk we spend a lot of time thinking about this area of submission. This morning, for the sake of time, I hope you don't mind, I'd rather not revisit that same territory all over again. Come and chat over morning too if you want, for sure. The main thing I want you to grasp this morning is that this is not a blanket statement that says that women can't ever speak in church. It's simply making the point that when it comes to evaluating a prophecy, when it comes to perhaps making the final decision of which prophecy a church is going to respond to, when it comes to that level of authority, there does need to be submission. And therefore, in that specific context... The way of love is for the women to be silent. It's a little controversial, isn't it? Boy, I mean, speaking in tongues, prophecy, women being called on to marriage. There's a few hot topics to have a chat to about over morning tea. But can you perhaps pull it all together and, and see how this is actually all leading out of what we've been seeing ever since chapter 12. This is all leading out of the idea that true spirituality is using, your, is using your gifts in love. True spirituality isn't about what gift you have, it's how you use your gift. It's using your gifts for the strengthening of the church. And sometimes what most strengthens the church is for us to be silent. Which is a little curious if you think about it. Because if you think about it, Paul is in fact saying here, that sometimes the most loving use of your gift, sometimes the most spiritual way to use your gift is to not use it. 
That's not often the way we think about our gifts. In fact, I suspect that ever since chapter 12, Paul has been approaching this whole topic of gifts quite differently to the way we often think. And so before we leave this topic of gifts, which we will next week, next Sunday, chapter 15, Paul's going to move on to a different topic altogether. But before we do that, please allow me to perhaps try and pull it all together by offering two observations that summarise a lot of what we've been learning ever since chapter 12. Observation number one. They are simply gifts, not spiritual gifts. Now, you're probably sick of me saying that over the past few weeks, but I reckon we can take a leaf out of the Apostle Paul's book and stop using the term spiritual gift and simply start calling them gifts. Because using, putting the word spiritual in front of it smuggles in a whole lot of quite unhelpful thinking, I reckon. Firstly, it can lead to the same misunderstanding that the Corinthians had, that somehow, that somehow the sort of gift you've got makes you more spiritual. That's clearly not the case. He's been saying that for chapter after chapter. But also, calling them spiritual gifts, it gives you this impression that they're sort of mysterious. They're sort of otherworldly sort of gifts that you can't fully explain. They're just gifts. And when Paul lists them all out, they're not just supernatural, spectacular, unusual sort of things like speaking in tongues or healing people. Back in chapter 12, when Paul listed out his, the gifts, he listed out things like the gift of administration, the gift of being able to help others. In Romans chapter 12, Paul mentions the gift of encouragement, the gift of leadership. And when Paul lists out different gifts, they're usually a mixture of what you might call natural and supernatural sort of things. I don't really like those words, but I hope you understand what I'm getting at. Because in the New Testament, gifts are any God-given talent or ability that God gives us to use in a church family. Gifts include things that can be learnt. Gifts include things that can be developed. Gifts include the sort of skills that you can be trained in. In fact, back in chapter 7, Paul even referred to being married or being single as a gift. In other words, the actual life situation you may happen to be in at the moment, that may be the gift that God intends you to be using for DPC. For example, are you currently in a life situation where you have more than the usual amount of free time on your hands. It probably won't always be like that, but just at the moment, just at, the, at this moment, you've got a bit of free time. That may well be the gift that God has given you for use in his church, that time to catch up with other people, to read the Bible with them, to pray with people, to help someone through a difficulty. Are you in a life situation where you currently actually have quite a high disposable income? Won't always be like that, but just at the moment, you're going through a patch where you've got a good amount of money compared to what you actually need. That may be the gift that you can use for God's church by supporting gospel ministries, African enterprise, helping people in, in need. Friends, that's the way the New Testament talks about gifts. Their abilities, their skill sets, their opportunities, their life circumstances that God gives us into our life to help others. 
And I reckon simply calling them gifts, like Paul does, that will go a long way to demystifying this whole topic and, and prevent us thinking too narrowly on them. They're simply gifts, not spiritual gifts. And observation two, it's all about love anyway, not the gift. Which hopefully you've been seeing, Paul has been hammering away on time and time and time again. What matters most is not what your gift is, but whether you are using it in love. Which is a very, very helpful perspective. Because so often we think of gifts in a vacuum. So often what seems to happen as people want to find out what their gift is, and so we start with ourselves and we ask, okay, well, what can I do? What am I skilled at? What am I capable of? And you either get depressed because you can't think of anything, or else you come up with something. Well, music. Or I can speak in tongues. Or I'm good at public speaking or something else. And the following thought is, well, then that's my gift. That's what I can do. And that's what I'm going to do. Now, that's sort of understandable. We want to play to our strings. But it can also be very unhelpful. A church family may not need what you're good at. And it can be incredibly selfish and self-indulgent to simply push a ministry or an activity because you think you have the gift for it and therefore you want to express yourself and use your gift and be fulfilled. Paul has just finished telling a whole range of people to be silent and not use their gift in certain circumstances. Just because you're able to do something never means you should be doing it. If you want to follow the way of love, we don't start with ourselves. If we want to follow the way of love, we don't start with the question, what's my gift? You start with the question, what does the church need? What would be a good way to strengthen the church at the moment? Do you think there's a weakness in welcoming newcomers to early church? I'm not saying there is, but do you think of that? Do you think there's a lack of hospitality, maybe? Do you think there's some gaps in caring for people during the week between our main meetings or, or growth groups? Well, have a go at filling the gap. See, that's how it works. You look around and you see what needs to be done and then you do it. And if you can do it, then you've got the gift. And if after a couple of months you discover that you actually can't do it very well, well, then you probably mightn't have the gift, and so you can pray for someone to come along and do it. That's the way we use our gifts. And in that sense, the gifts you have in one church may actually be quite different to the gifts you have in another church because the needs of one church will be different to another needs, and that's the way of love. You actually see what's needed, and then you do it so as to encourage and strengthen and comfort and edify and build up. And so here at the end of this section on gifts within 1 Corinthians, let me close by simply thanking those of you who are using your gifts this way. Because one of the great privileges I have in my role here at DPC, one of the great joys that Alan and Wayne and I get to see is the way in which so many of you just quietly go around 
using your gifts, using your abilities, using your skills, using your life situation just to fill needs, just to strengthen the church, just to build others up. Thanks. I would think that in any one week, literally hundreds of hours are spent by brothers and sisters across DPC just listening to one another, helping one another, laughing with one another, weeping with one another, reading the Bible with one another, praying with one another. Every week, people are deliberately training themselves and skilling themselves up so as to better understand the Bible, so as to better lead a growth group, so as to better care for someone else. People go along with other people to difficult appointments so as to lend support. People make themselves available as sounding boards to help others make decisions. People pick up and drop off and care for other people's children. Meals are made, meals are shared. Lifts are given, cars are lent, cars are fixed, sometimes cars are simply given away. Every now and then, envelopes full of money are put into the collection with an anonymous note. Please give this to so-and-so. They're doing it tough. People have arrived early this morning to help set up for you. People have arrived early this morning to practice music for you. People have come in during the week to clean bathrooms for you. People will go home late this morning because they've been here serving you. And friends, if you are one of those people doing those things, thank you. Thank you for using your gifts to edify and strengthen the others in this church. Thank you for doing what the past three chapters have been all about. But if in your heart of hearts you know that's not you, could you please start? Not because I'm asking you to, but because God calls you to it. For we are the body of Christ and we follow the way of love. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this passage this morning and this whole section within 1 Corinthians where you've constantly prodded us to do things in love. Thank you for shaping us by your word and we pray that by your word and by your spirit you would enable us to be the people of love that you have called us to be. Father, uh, we thank you for the rich blessing that it is to be within a church family. Thank you for those many brothers and sisters who have served us already even today. Thank you for them. And Lord, we pray that by your word and by your spirit, we would be continually, that we would keep being changed so that we might love each other well. For your sake and for your glory. Amen.